listener, thanks for joining us for TRP's weekly podcast. The Restoration Project is a cooperative Baptist fellowship church located in Salisbury, Maryland. We are currently teaching through the book of Exodus. It's an important ancient story about God rescuing the Hebrew people from forced labor in Egypt. This story informs much of what Israel believed about God, and it recurs throughout the Old Testament. The themes sounded in the story ultimately reach their climax in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, who leads people out of a different form of slavery and oppression into life and hope. If you would like more information on the Restoration Project, you can check us out on Facebook or head over to our website at restoresby.org. Enjoy the episode. John Walton is an Old Testament professor at Wheaton College, and he says this, effective communication requires a body of agreed upon words, terms, and ideas. I'm gonna read that one more time. Effective communication requires a body of agreed upon words, terms, and ideas. If someone outside of the language culture matrix wants to take advantage of information that is communicated within the language culture matrix, Cultural education is required. This is why old people have resources like Urban Dictionary. So that when uh, the kids are talking about crazy stuff, we can quick Google something and figure out what's going on. Now, Urban Dictionary is kind of a thing in, in its own right. And for most pastors, you can't really find too many great examples of what is on Urban Dictionary because of the massive amounts of sexual and drug references that you will find there. But I did manage to find a couple that were okay. So for the old people, if you hear the kids saying something was lit, you then know that that means it's turned up or popping. (laughs) Obviously. So parents, when the kids come home and say, mom, this dinner was lit, you'd be like, great. I'm glad that you appreciated how the pork chop was popping tonight, son or daughter, or, and I don't think anybody has ever used this word, but I did find this cognate that's just based on the root of lit, which is lituation. It's a situation that is lit or a lit situation. So parents, if you really want to get your kids in a way, just go up to school as you're picking them up and say, this is a lituation, isn't it? (laughs) Was school lit today? They will not appreciate you as a person for quite some time. I've always said it's my main dream, and this doesn't really work as well with Abe and Jude, but like I always wanted to take the family to a beach vacation and just show up in my Speedo as the kids were like in their preteen and teenage years and just really embarrass them, okay? Now that you have that image seared into your brain, we can just continue on here. But Urban Dictionary helps us to effectively communicate when we have an understanding of what's going on. And with the social media generation, there's lots of communication breakdowns between older people and younger people and maybe even between younger people as they're communicating together. And I do have just some examples of what these communication breakdowns look like, and some of my uh, examples are dated, okay? But when people say something about eyebrows on fleek, don't look up that video, just understand that these, these are things that old people don't know, or cash me outside, how about that? Or this guy that keeps showing up everywhere on your social media feed, the Salt Bay guy, I don't, I don't know, but cultural education is required to understand what in the world is going on on your social media feed for the old people, okay? Now, I know that most of the the young folks, this isn't something that you need help with, but cultural education is required, but it's also required as we tap back into the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. 
This isn't something where you can just flip it open and just read the words off the page and expect to understand all of the complexities of what's going on. God help us, but in 500 years or so, when people look back on 21st century American uh, communication and they see those ridiculous memes, I, they will have, like if something were to happen to us and we go dark for 500 years, there's no way to piece back what's happening with the Salt Bay guy. You know what I mean? Like no, no scholar could bring that together. But in the same way, when we go back thousands of years to try to understand what's going on in the text, and I, I put this picture up here. It's a really boring story. This is like the, uh, the allotment narratives in, in Joshua. But it just shows you like this is completely foreign to most of us as we look back on this passage. The Bible is an ancient book written in ancient languages by various ancient authors living in diverse ancient contexts and communicating to different ancient audiences. Now, I just kind of set the bar really high because basically I'm saying it's impossible for us to go back and understand what's going on here. And I don't really want to go quite that far because I do believe that the power of the Holy Spirit can illuminate or bring illumination to us as we read. I also believe that the story of the gospel is a, in its core details, it's a simple story where Jesus shows up for us. I believe that we can get that, but there's, there's nuances within this text that are so deeply embedded within a culture that is so foreign from our own, it's quite arrogant for us to think that we don't have to put in any work whatsoever to recapture some of those intended meanings. So as we look back to this story, a cultural education is required so that we don't miss the Bible's significance in the passage that we are looking at this evening in the story of Exodus. Now, before we get there, I want to just briefly review where we've been up to this point. We have seen God call Moses, specifically call Moses to lead a people out of slavery and servitude, out of oppression into freedom and life. And initially Moses shirks this call saying, I can't do this. I'm not worthy. I need some signs. I don't even know what your name is. Please don't pick me, pick somebody else to do this. And God answers each one of those objections in turn. And by the end is kind of perturbed with Moses saying, trust me, man, I'm going to be with you. And we've seen how Moses uh, initially gets this audience with Pharaoh, the, the top cheese of the land, the imperial ruler of this people. We don't quite know how Moses ends up in front of him, but he petitions on behalf of the people saying, let these people go, send them out of this place. And Pharaoh's not having it. Instead, what Pharaoh does is he increases the workload on these people. So now Moses gets a hard no from Pharaoh and now all of the people start hating Moses because the plan that he had to bring about deliverance for them was being stymied by Pharaoh. And now he's got people all over the place that are mad at him, which leads Moses to cry out and say, what are you doing? You called me to do this job and now nothing is happening and you haven't saved these people at all. And last week, in an interesting and perhaps unexpected way, we read through 12 verses or so three different times to hear God's affirmation of Moses. I am with you, Moses. I will lead these people out. I will redeem them. They will be my people. I will be their God. Trust me. And now we see Moses and Aaron again in front of Pharaoh. Now, where this story is going, and we can talk about like the, the cultural um, 
embeddedness of this story. And I think it's important for us, every time we open up the Old Testament, we read through 21st century American eyes. We read through the eyes of, of justice, at least how we conceive of that. And we see these stories, not as ancient stories, but we see them in our own context. And we start pointing the finger at God saying, how dare you? Why can you, how are you doing these different things? You shouldn't be treating people this way. You shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be doing this because we're reading as 21st century Americans that live in the world of tolerance. And we forget the ancient rootedness of the story. Now, I don't want to get God off the hook completely because some of these Old Testament stories are very, very difficult for us to understand what it is that's going on. But I at least think that a good first step is understanding their ancient culture. And as we turn the page and we see Moses and Aaron before Pharaoh again, we're going to be introduced to a series of plagues that God brings about upon the Egyptian people, Pharaoh and everyone else in the land. And these plagues range in the difficulties and they range in the severity and we see different things happening and it culminates with a, gosh, an atrocious display of power. And if we forget the ancient cultural rootedness of these stories, we can for potentially forget what God is all about and we begin to point the finger and at least want to cause us to, to stop and slow down and breathe as we read these stories and understand their ancient context before we go crazy. But what we're going to see is this story today is going to lead us into the plague narratives, the 10 signs that God does to demonstrate his power over Pharaoh and over the Egyptian people and to say finally and climactically to Moses and all the Israelites, I am with you and I am am better than any other God you may think is out there and any other king that has power over you, I will deliver you and I will give you freedom and life. And this story is going in a direction and we're gonna touch on this more next week. This is just kind of the prelude into this, but this is a difficult passage that we will go through together leading up to Easter. I think the timing of this is pretty neat. Sovereign, provident if you will, um, but leading into Easter as we are going to go through the Red Sea with God's people as they are removed from slavery and servitude and oppression into freedom and life and hope through God's plan um, that's outworked in this story. But here, I'm gonna read a few verses from Exodus chapter seven. It says, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers and the Egyptian magicians. They also did the same thing by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard and he would not listen to them just as the Lord had said. The word of God for the people of God. Now be honest with me. When you hear stuff about the secret arts, you immediately go to Professor Snape. Do you not? Okay, you didn't think that this was in the Bible, but it is. But here this story is introducing the plague narratives and we see this sign that Moses and Aaron have been given earlier in the story to remember to throw down the, the staff and it becomes the snake and there's some symbolic stuff that's happening there which we'll talk about. 
Remember um, when Moses first got this gift to do this sign, he threw down the staff and became a snake and he ran away, much like I would and many of you probably would because I don't mess with snakes, okay? I was under the house last year because I had to be. It was, a, it was an adventure, just me trying to get the little door off of the thing to get me under there. But once I shimmied myself under there and threw my back out of joint, I was just kind of laying under there thinking, if a mouse or a snake shows up, game over, okay, for me, because there's no way I can shimmy, shimmy back out of there. But this, this story is introducing the plagues, and specifically we hear some stuff that might make sense to us, at least symbolically, as we're just reading through and being good readers of the story. It says, Aaron threw his staff down. Now, I should back up here a little bit and tell you to remember that Moses did not want this job, so God says, I'll give you Aaron, and he can be your guy. And in the passage right before this that we skipped over because there's a lot of uh, resonances with the things we've already seen, God says to Moses that he will be a God to Aaron and Aaron will be his prophet. So Aaron is like the mouthpiece, the one who goes before Pharaoh and does these um, signs and these wonders and speaks the things that Moses is off to the side telling him to say. And then finally uh, in plagues seven, eight, and nine, Moses becomes the one who is then the leader of this, and he doesn't seem to need Aaron anymore, okay? So Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake just like it's supposed to. And then each one of um, Pharaoh's magicians or wise men threw down their staff, and it became a snake, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. And it doesn't take much for us as readers to see that there might be something worth thinking about there that Aaron throws down his staff and it's this snake and it eats up all the other snakes. And I just kind of wonder what's going on as this is playing out. Are they watching this? Is fair just kind of saying, look, my guys can do what you're doing, no big deal. And then he looks over like, oh no, the snakes, they've been eaten. I don't know how that, would, how that would work out, but it doesn't seem to do much because as we hear in this final uh, passage, it says, yet Pharaoh's heart became hard and he would not listen to them just as the Lord had said. And this is framing the entire plague narrative where Pharaoh is not having it. He does not want these people to go and he does not want his authority to be challenged by anyone, God included. This is not Pharaoh's God but he becomes more recalcitrant the longer this stuff plays out. And throughout this this narrative, and we'll see this more clearly next week, I hope, you are almost rooting for him just to let the people go because we know how the story's gonna end and it's gonna be a travesty. But he's he's not there. Just as God had said, Pharaoh's heart became hard and he would not listen to them. And there is tension in this, right? Because it says throughout that Pharaoh is hardening his own heart. And then we also have passages that says God is hardening Pharaoh's heart. And there's this tension between what we do to reconcile God's role in this and Pharaoh's own role in this as well. I have more things I could say about that, but I'm not going to. But I want to look back here and kind of dip into this ancient Near Eastern culture as we look at the memes or as we look into our urban dictionary of what's going on in this passage, okay? Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials and it became a tanin. <laughs> Since you have no idea what I'm talking about, I'm gonna read that again and I'm gonna get as, as lit. No, okay, no. Aaron threw down his staff in front of Pharaoh and his officials and it became a tanin. For an ancient reader, they would have said, what? 
like pause and let's think about this for a second. And I understand that tonight my entire sermon it hinges on a couple of archaic Hebrew words that you don't know, okay? But just stick with me here. So it becomes a tanin, and each one threw down their staff, and it became a tanin, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Now, why am I freaking out about this? Let's go back in time here a bit, okay? Because we're in Exodus chapter 7. If we turn the pages to the right a couple of pages, we'll see that um, in Exodus 4, this is when Moses receives the sign of throwing down the staff and it becomes a snake. Moses answered, what if they don't believe me or listen to me or say the Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, what is that thing in your hand? It's a staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. So Moses threw it on the ground and it became a nachash. Gotta get that guttural going. Drink some milk first. Nachash, okay? And he ran from it. This is another Hebrew snake word. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the nachash and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of the fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you because your staff will turn into a nachash, Moses. Except in this passage, it doesn't turn into a nachash, it turns into a tanin. You see what I'm saying? Not yet? Okay, let's develop this a bit. All right, yes, okay. I, I got carried away with the memes today and Gene Wilder shows up. Don't, don't judge me. Okay, so for an ancient audience, the reference to Tanin would not need Urban Dictionary. I feel like a dad up here today with my jokes. Just, just humor me, people. That, I'm trying, trying to keep this exciting and interesting. Tim, I don't like you. You're on my bad list right now. Okay, so this tanin, it references back to creation. In Genesis 1, this is one of the creation stories we have in the Old Testament. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth, it was formless and void. This is beautiful. Yes, tohu vavohu. God is beginning to shape and to create the world through these things that are pre-existent almost, and he's taking the chaos and he's forming it into an ordered society, into an ordered world that can be inhabited by people and by animals and by all these things. The story of Genesis 1 underlying that is what God does with chaos, this is a story that can be compared to other creation accounts where the gods are killing each other and then taking their bloody carcasses and creating the heavens and the earth with the remnants of the gods that they are destroying. But we also see in this passage, God is seemingly uh, not too concerned with chaos. He's not too concerned with the forces that be. He's not too concerned with all of the things that other gods are concerned with. In fact, it says the spirit of God is hovering over the deep, the to home, the thing that people were so scared of that potentially meant chaos in their lives. The spirit of God is just hovering over the top. And you've heard me say this as if to say, you've got nothing on me. And then what we see in Genesis 1, 21 is that God creates the sea monsters which are called the Tanin, these dragon-type creatures of the sea that everyone else was so concerned with, but our God creates them and tames them 
and says, you've got nothing on me. I made you and you do what I tell you to do. And in this story, it's not that Moses and Aaron throw down their staff and it becomes this nachash, this, this serpent or this snake. It's a tanin, it's a Genesis word that, that brings back chaos in a story where Pharaoh is systematically trying to undo all of creation by killing the little babies of Israel, by making them work in forced labor and servitude, by making them serve him and not their God. He's going against every creation principle that is outlined in Genesis 1 and 2. And this is a little tip of the cap to the ancient reader to say, don't read this story without thinking about this other ancient story and how God is powerful over the tanin, the sea monsters, the dragons, the serpents, whatever you want to call that. And remember that what we see here in this text is Aaron's staff becoming a tanin and swallowing up all of the other tanins. The word tanin, it denotes a larger, more terrifying beast or sea monster and is part of the mythic vocabulary of the Hebrew Bible. Carol Meyer says it represents the forces of chaos as antithetical to God's will. Another scholar says Tanin in the Old Testament as well as in the ancient Near Eastern uh, context represents the chaotic forces of nature that God conquers at creation. According to the ancient worldview, creation means the power of God giving order to chaos, shaping it, saying the heavens go up here and the land goes here and the seas go there and the waters above and the waters from below. He's shaping and he's forming and he's taming all of these things. He's giving order to chaos. This is what Genesis 1 language looks like. The king of Egypt represents an anti-God, anti-creation force which the true God conquers. It's a beautiful and powerful story. And if we're not hip to the language of the ancient Near East, we kind of miss some of those resonances. All we see is a cool party trick where Aaron throws down his staff and it becomes a snake and it randomly eats these other things. And we say like, oh, God wins. But we miss so much of the depth and richness of the story and what it communicates to us. Our God continues to tame chaos our God continues to demonstrate his power over the rival forces that are trying to systematically undo his creative principles in the world. And what we see in the plagues is Pharaoh not heeding to any of this, not letting the people go. And it's almost as if he's saying, um, I don't care what you're about. I will continue to undo creation. I will continue to make these people my slaves. I will continue to beat them and whip them. I will continue to fill in the blank. And God seems to say, you want it? You got it. And what we see in the plagues is God's answer to what Pharaoh is doing by undoing creation. And what we see is God beginning to undo creation himself in the Egyptian culture. One example, this is the first plague. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river. Confront him on the banks of the Nile and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now, you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this, you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. 
The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all of the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and stone. So Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all of the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptian magicians did the same thing by their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the river. These plagues, they're creation reversals. No longer is this Nile the source of life. It is turned and transformed into a source of death. In fact, it is killing all of the fish in the Nile. And we see this is not a picture of God in Genesis 1 making things great and creating these things and it's, it's thriving. But here we see uh, these creation reversals where the, the flourishing water of life, it becomes blood. Pete N says that animals in the, in the plagues as a whole, animals harm rather than serve humanity. We see whether that be locusts or the frogs that show up in plague number two we have, or the lice or the gnats. People aren't really sure what that means, but lice sounds way worse to me than gnats, but either one is not cool. But the animals that we are supposed to be subduing, the animals are harming and not serving Light ceases and darkness takes over in uh, plague number nine when it's complete and utter darkness in Egypt. Hear that if we're going back to creation, let there be light, except here, no. It's complete and utter darkness, pitch black. The waters become a source of death rather than life. And the climax of Genesis one is the creation of humans on the last day where the climax of the plagues is the destruction of human beings in the last plague. These are anti-creation uh, events that are happening or reversals of creation. What we see here is this whole thing is set up by Pharaoh's hardening of his own heart where he will not allow God to say what it is that God wants to do in and through him. And God tapping into these forces of chaos and unleashing them in a sense on the Egyptian people. One more point about these plague narratives. We see that this is, this is not Moses and Aaron versus Pharaoh. This is God versus Pharaoh. In fact, this is God versus all of the Egyptian gods that we see here. In particular, the snakes that we just talked about when you throw down the, the staff and it becomes a snake. The frogs, which is plague two. After they fix the Nile and it's no longer blood, all of these frogs just come up and infest everything. There's frogs everywhere. And this isn't, as one commentator would say, this isn't like a cutesy little, oh, look at the frogs. This is like frogs everywhere, not cool. And when the frogs are finally taken care of, they're just piles of dead frogs, which is killing so much of the land. And then also the plague number nine, where darkness is brought on the land, all in an attempt to try to get Pharaoh to let these people go, but he won't do it. These snakes and frogs, and this darkness, it's got resonances with the Egyptian gods of the time. We talked about this a few weeks ago where on the Egyptian headdress of the, the leaders of the time, there's this snake because it's a symbol of authority within Egypt. Now here's something you might not have known. There's an Egyptian god called Heket, who is the goddess of fertility. 
And you can see here, she's to the right there, and hopefully you can pick up on this. Her head is a big frog head, totally terrifying, <laughs> right? But it puts um, plague number two where all these frogs just come up onto the land and God is, is calling them to do his bidding and then getting rid of them whenever it is that he wants to. He's saying, in a sense, yeah, the snake's on your head, I, I'm kind of in control of that. And the frogs that are all over the place and you pray to them so that you can have babies. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of the one who's, who's over that. And the, the sun god, Ra, where God just says, lights, done. This is a complete and utter picture of God's power. And it's a polemic over the Egyptian rulers and the gods at the time where God says, guys, I am more powerful than any of your gods. Listen to me. Trust me, do as I say, but they do not. This story where we just throw down the staffs and it becomes the tanin, these ancient sea monster type things, the end of the plague is at the beginning here where we see this tanin of Aaron eating up all of the other ones. It's a precursor towards the victory that God has in and through these plague narratives. It says that each one threw down his staff and it became a tanin. One more nerdy Hebrew word here for you because this is important. But Aaron's staff, it didn't just swallow the other staffs, it balad the other staffs. The only other time this word is used in Exodus is after God has closed up the Red Sea on the Egyptians that are following in pursuit of the Israelites. And it says that the earth balaz the enemies of Israel. The snake that swallows up these other snakes leads us to the end of this story where God's people will experience freedom and life and hope. And it does not work out really well for the Egyptians. I want us to see something here in this story, though. Because... With the Old Testament, it's not just cool like Hebrew terms, although they are cool. It's not just us dipping back into ancient Near Eastern context, although that is necessary. It is not just us seeing these, these things and how they play out. Even this story of the plagues and the Exodus is a precursor towards the real end of chaos, which as Christians know, it happens when Jesus submits to death that is brought upon him by us, by our desires, by our selfishness and our uh, internal motivation and our lack of belief and lack of trust. We see this play out in the first century where Jesus, in a sense, says to the people, you want me to die, I'll die. And in so doing, I will put to death evil and I will put to death sin. And I will do it so that we can have a relationship together. The things that you want from me and the fact that you want to kill me, it will not keep me from loving you. It will not keep me from wanting to be in relationship with you. It will not keep me from wanting to tame the chaos in your life and demonstrating mastery over it. It will not keep me from pursuing you. These stories of, of the, the plagues and these stories of the Exodus where Egypt uh, continues to oppress this people that God brings into freedom. 
It's a precursor towards the exodus that we have experienced when we believe in Jesus and when we confess him as Lord and when we experience the freedom and life that he offers us. Now, this does not mean that your life will be free of chaos, but even in the midst of those hospital room visits, even in the midst of those funeral services that you do not want to be at, even in the midst of the brokenness with your jobs and your relationships and the people that have harmed you, even in the midst of all of that chaos, remember the image of God over the deep saying, you've got nothing on me and I will be present in your life. And we have this image of a God who loves us so much that not even death can keep him from trying to engage us and trying to bring about in our lives change and transformation and hope. Tonight, I don't know what you got going on. I don't know where you are in your life. I don't know the things that you're wrestling with. I don't know if they're completely philosophical and theological. I don't know if they're just like in your guts that you can't quite take that step. I don't know what's going on, but I want you to at least hear the image that we see in this text of a God who is in control of all of the elements and is in control and working out the end of chaos that happens climactically through the death and resurrection of his son. I hope tonight that that's not just churchy, Christian-y type stuff, but I hope tonight that that's at least something that's compelling and worth thinking through that in your life, there's nothing that you could throw at him that he will not absorb and say, I still want you. I hope that gives you life this evening in the midst of whatever chaos you may find yourself in. Thanks again for joining us. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to visit us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story is, there's room for you here. And again, if you'd like more information, please visit our website at restoresby.org. Hope to see you soon.